Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show. Today we have another very special guest, Bruce Herrett. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you very much, Buster. Uh, I'm here in beautiful Toronto, and it's, uh, I don't know, the leaves are turning. Do you, leaves? Do you have leaves where you are? Uh, we have like, well, I'm in Texas right now, so we have like palm tree leaves. <laughs> oh, they don't really turn color, do they? No, but, they don't really do much. You're originally from the New York area, right? So you know all about the beauties of fall. Yes. Oh, it's so gorgeous right now. Literally the best time. Of, I, I went to high school in Connecticut, and oh. best time of year, hands down, is the end of August, September, oh. October, November. You know, it is my favorite time of year. I'm a little biased because I was born in October, oh. and, uh, and, I, and I actually liked school what day i love october 3rd oh, happy belated birthday oh thank you uh yeah i actually liked school and um i would look forward to going back to school and uh and i had a birthday no i just love autumn i think i like the change you know i think i'd go crazy if i was in some place like los angeles like one of my best friends lives in la I said, but you don't have seasons there. It's just the same all the time. It's beautiful. hundred <laughs> yeah, percent. Um, just now, beautiful. Horrible, boring, boringly beautiful. You know what I mean? Terrible. Not me can get to you. Not me. Um, I want to ask about your your beginnings of your career. Um, because I was reading up on your bio and it is mind blowing how many different things you have done, how mm. many different jobs you have had, how many different passions of your own you pursued. How did, how did your career path begin and what did you think you wanted to do when you were younger? And then how did that, uh, you know, bring itself to fruition in different ways? That's a good question. Uh, yeah, I'm, I think I'm at 35 job titles now uh, so far, but that's only because I started working when I was like 12 and uh, not full time, of course, you know, that <laughs> they let me uh, they let me work part time and live at home. Um, but I, I had a jobs, I had summer jobs, part time jobs and all that. So that was a really good experience for me. I had a paper route and then I was uh, worked a grocery store and then every summer I had a different job. What I thought I wanted to do was psychology. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something to do with how people behave and think. I was very interested in human nature. So when I went to college, um, I went into psychology and sociology as, as my double major. Then at 19, I decided to leave university after two years. And my parents were really great. They supported it to take the year off. Uh, in the middle of my degree, which is a four-year degree, right? Um, anyway, I was 19, I went to New Zealand. And I'll get to the career eventually here, but everybody that I knew, including both my older brothers, were going to Europe at the time. This was the late 60s and early 70s, early 70s, actually. It was very cool to, um, uh, as a teenager or a college kid, to go to Europe, go to Germany, buy like a Volkswagen Westphalia. You wouldn't know anything about that, of course. Uh, just bought one. 
Anyway, yeah, they pick up, buy a Volkswagen, and then drive all over Europe, get drunk and stoned and everything, and get laid. Um, so when it came to take a year off, I decided to go to New Zealand. And the main reason, Buster, was that I was absolutely sure I would not run into my brothers. That's amazing. Okay, or anybody else from home. I was like a bit of a low, not, I wasn't a loner, I was very social, but I also had no fear. So I just got on a ship in Vancouver and was going to Auckland, New Zealand. I didn't have enough money to get back. So I went there and I worked. And after that year of almost a year in New Zealand, I got really clear that I wanted to study English literature because I've been actually writing since grade, grade I don't know, two. I've been writing stuff down. I was, you know, I thought, am I going to be a writer of some kind? So I finished an English degree and I was about to, again, this, I was saved, Buster, I was saved from being institutionalized. I thought I wanted to be a high school English teacher, you know, English and theater, because I, I was in theater as well as an actor in university. And um, I'm all signed up for teacher's college. I thought that'll be safe. I'll have a job and a pension. And this buddy asked me, would you consider co-writing and producing a short film? And I said, yep, <laughs> just, just, you know, just no more teacher's college, graduated with my English degree. And right away, I was producing a film and co-writing it. What do you think made it so that you would be willing to pivot so abruptly to something like that? What, what well, that's very interesting. It's, uh, thank you for asking, because I, I, I recommend this to anybody who's in college and they think they want to do a job, go do it for a few days. Just go do it. So we have this incredible program at York University here in Toronto where you could go and be a substitute teacher kind of thing uh, without your teacher's degree if you thought you one day wanted to be a teacher. So I went and I hated it. I hated it. These bratty 15-year-olds, they're like, like going after your throat, right? The girls are the worst, right? They went after you. And I thought, I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to keep kids in line so that then I can teach them I'm like discipline. I was more on their side. I wanted to interrupt me, you know. So, uh, so I just thought, no, that's not for me. Also, my heart wasn't in the teacher's college thing. I really wanted to be a creative person. So I ended up uh, producing this film. And, you know, I don't know when you... You know, when you're when you're that age, like 22, what are you, 21? I was like 20, 20. OK, well, I was 22 or something. But anyway, I had hired a cop. They stopped the traffic downtown on a Friday afternoon for the film. Uh, you know, I wanted a Cadillac. So I called up the head of the Cadillac dealership. I'm making a film. Can I have a Cadillac for a day? Sure. You know, it was like it was fun. And so that's how it became a writer. And uh, that was the career path for me was a writer. So fast forward in my 20s, I worked in film. I got, a, I got this job. One of the biggest stars of the day was Peter O'Toole. He's an Irish actor who was a superstar in the 70s, uh, international superstar. And he was coming to Toronto to be in a film. So I got in, got working on that film. And this is another teaching point I can share with your audience here. Don't give up. I had never had any experience on a film. I kept, and this guy, oh, these, this guy opened an office. I'll tell you how weird this was, Buster. 
I had a part-time job moving furniture. I was, a, I was a struggling writer. I was trying to be a theater writer and film writer. So I was making no money. So I had this job moving furniture. And I said, why are we moving this furniture? Oh, there's a film office opening. I went, film? Because I had made this film, right? And I went, right. I'm in. Film office, I'm in. So as soon as they opened, I went in and I, hello, I'd like to work on your film. I'll do anything. He said, we're not even we haven't even unpacked our boxes yet. Come back in a month. So I came back. He said, we're not quite ready. Come back in a week. I came back in a week. I did that six times. Oh, Every week I showed up in person. Hi, remember me? I'd like a job on your film. So finally he says to me. Nobody knows what that is nowadays. Now the equivalent of that is copying and pasting a DM or an email. Well, that's okay too. Persistence pays. So you just, you don't give up. And finally the guy was just, he was like, okay, can you drive a car? And I said, yeah, of course, I've got my license. You're gonna be Peter O'Toole. Well, that's the equivalent of saying you're gonna be like, who's the hottest star right now? Uh, movie star? Yeah, movie star. Who's, who's DiCaprio. You're gonna be a Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio's driver exclusively for a month and a half, okay? Now, will you go away? I said, what? <laughs> so as Peter O'Toole was, at that level, but higher, because he's an international movie star. So I landed in this job and uh, learned a lot about film, kept writing. But the big change for me, Buster, was when I, when I turned 30, two major, I had gotten married and I was actually figuring out that I was gay. So when I turned 30, I decided to leave the marriage and my wife was cool about it. She said, yeah, I get it. So two things happened. One is, I need to start earning a real living because I, I just didn't have the heart to be a film writer. Or a, I wrote some theater. I got some stuff produced, but I didn't see it happening. So I went, oh, how can I make money as a writer? And uh, my friend was running a small company. A friend from high school started a company. A bunch of actors got together and decided to open a company that wrote musical theater comedy for corporate sales events. You follow? So you have a sales force once a year, you want to get them all together in a place pre-COVID and get them, you know, like fired up. So there was this thing happening where people wanted infotainment at their sales conference. So information combined with entertainment. I happened to, I had my own theater in my 20s as well. So I happened to be able to write musical theater comedy and he hired me. And then for the next 10 years, believe it or not, I had a niche writing musical theater comedy for corporate wow american express banks a hell of a gig i had timex for 10 years you know kept them ticking and i'm i was a comedy writer basically but i also was a musician i was a composer and i wrote lyrics and uh that was so much fun that was so much fun. that's how i got started in in the, in the writing business and i made a good living from that um just knocked on doors what I did is actually as a freelancer, I have this, um, I have this, uh, hard to keep me talking, isn't it? <laughs> I have this thing yeah. called, I had this. Very easy for me. I'm listening, I love this. Okay, so I had this hub theory of freelance life, which was that if you could find five companies that hired you five times a year to do something that was between 500 and $1,000, you were making a living. Mm -hmm. 
right? So I found five companies that hired me five times a year to pay me 2,500 to 3,000. And this was in the 80s, which was a lot of money then. And I made a living. So I collected five production companies who, believe it or not, all specialized in helping companies put on fabulous sales conferences. Writing, producing, lights, music, you know, staging, the whole thing. And I found five of them and they kept me busy for tips. So there's a little tip for you kids out there. Try to find and nurture solid relationships where you're the most valuable player. It's a little sports metaphor. You're the MVP. So I was the most, I made myself indispensable as a writer. And I was the one that was reliable, that got the script done fast, sometimes overnight, that helped out to pitch the job even without charging. I'd come in, we'd pitch the client, we'd get Timex again, great. And I'm the writer, right? Yeah, you're the writer. So then it was like smooth sailing, no more marketing. I just pick up the phone. When is it? Yeah, how much? Same, I? yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm in, good, thank you. That's the marketing. Now, were these individual events that you were doing it for, so nothing was back, so nothing was like on top of each other and you were able to pretty easily manage your time or? or... Uh, yeah, but sometimes, you know, they were never on the same day. There were times, I remember one time I worked seven weeks every day, seven days a week for seven weeks. So what? And then it gets quiet, right? You make hay while the sun's shining, is that the expression? Do you have that one in America? Make hay, make hay while the sun shines. <laughs> I love that. Um, so I, I want to ask, um, you also, you managed Canada's first stand-up comedy club? Yeah, that was wild. What's the context behind that? And how do you end up doing, being the first at that um, when you hadn't, had, when you'd been in a different field? Well, interesting. Now, this is again, uh, for you folks listening out there, and there's a lot of you. Here's a tip. I was networking before I knew what networking was. Mm. I just didn't know it was called that. For example, networking. Sorry? You just like meeting new people for business or what? How did you think? What did you think it was? Meet lots of people. You know, one guy said to me, I deal with, I work with a lot of young people. And the guy said, yeah, it's all about who you know. And I said, well, go know, go know some people then. Get off your ass. Right. Get to know some people. It, you know, yes, it is who you know, but that doesn't exempt you. There's not some special uh, magic wand that, you know, that Buster has ping, he knows people. You worked your ass off to go and know people since you were probably 14 years old, right? Yeah. Exactly. So anyway, uh, I went to school with this man named Mark Breslin. He studied English Lit at York. And I was working in this place called, I don't know, the Great Muffin, or it was called the Great Canadian Muffin. I don't know if, I don't, I'm not a flag waver or anything, but you know, it was called the Great Canadian, Canadian, Canadian Muffin Factory or something. You know, you have these chains. I was making muffins and serving soup at 27. I was embarrassed, but you know, I was a writer. So in walks Mark and he, I was a little bit humiliated. Had to wear like a engineer's hat, you know, like a railroad engineer. Yeah. The cover, coveralls. Have you had a McJob like that ever? I don't know. It's like a, we call them McJobs up here. Anyway, so I'm a little bit humiliated. There's this friend Mark. I'm serving him soup. 
and a muffin, right? He says, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm a writer and I'm working at this and that and film and this is, you know, a between job. And uh, he said, uh, I'm opening a comedy club. Come and see me. So I wasn't the startup. He was, but I knew him. And he was a very, uh, very smart entrepreneur. And he had been to New York, to Carolines and, and, and all the places in New York City, right? So this was 1977. So there were no comedy clubs in Toronto, like stand-up comedy clubs. It wasn't known, right? Yeah. So I, he tapped me. I said, yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. And uh, no experience managing a, a club. <laughs> See, this is when you have friends, right? They say, yeah, let's try it. You seem like a reasonable man. And uh, I had a ball. I met Robin Williams. Oh, hmm? oh, I'm, I didn't mean to cut you off on that one. Yeah, well, you know, there's a, I don't know if you know, Buster, but in the stand-up comedy world, there's an agreement amongst comics that when they make it big, they always drop into the local comedy club when they're in town and do a set. It's payback time, right? And, you know, they get to practice. He, he was just breaking in Mork and Mindy at that time, and he had been up on a talk show or something. So <laughs> I'm there one night, I'm managing the club. It's like, okay, everything's great. And on Mark comes the stage, the tiny little stage, and says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest tonight. Please welcome Vladimir Vladivostok. And on comes Robin as a Russian poet. Oh my God. He, he could only do that in Canada. In the U.S., they, they, you know, they kill him. He's Soviet, right? So he comes on. He does this whole skit as a Russian poet, like in character. He was brilliant. He was brilliant. Do you know Jim Carrey, the TV the movie actor? So, okay, so uh, he came that first year. He was 17. His dad brought him, and he was an impressionist, and he was brilliant impressionist. Um, and Howie Mandel also went to my high school. He, he showed up there, a very funny guy. So uh, as you know, we, we, we export um, world-famous musicians and comics from Toronto. Mike Myers, Howie Mandel, you know, Jim Carrey, uh, Drake, uh, Bieber, uh, who else? Sean Mendes, uh, Alicia Cara. You know, we just, I don't know what it is in Toronto, but it's a very vibrant scene, but we're also really competitive. And, and at one time, I checked the Billboard top 10 for the world. And it was mostly... Seven were Canadian. Wow. Not just Canadian, seven of the top ten in the world, number one songs and artists were from Toronto Wow! or within an hour of here. I want to ask more. Do you remember what impressions Jim Carrey was doing at the comedy club that he seventeen when his dad had to bring him? Sammy Davis Jr. Brilliant. Really? Uh, Johnny Carson. Um, it was a different time, right? It was the oh. 70s. So people that you wouldn't do now. But you know what? I, why I knew he was a genius? And you probably know this from basketball. There are people who have so much talent that they take it to a certain point and then they go a little bit further and you go, what? No, this guy's insane. He's going to do that. So Jim was, as you can imagine, was very um, physically agile. It was physical comedy, right? So Sammy Davis Jr., who I don't know if you know of him, but who's a big star, right? Yeah. yeah. Sammy. 
he'd do this whole thing with he'd get the jaw right and talk like Sammy, you know, then he'd sing it, you know, and his hand would be up like this. He was a brilliant physical comic. And uh and of course Robin. Uh and also I could see that Howie was gonna make it because he was like he was a carpet salesman. He was working at his, at his dad's store as a carpet salesman. And he comes in and he was just, you could see he had it because he had charisma. Mm -hmm. He had the audience in the palm of his hand, right? So, yeah, that was pretty awesome. So would you say that the biggest factor in you being able to tell that some of those, you know, young kids at the time that, that they were going to make it was a combination of the charisma and just willing to take it a step further than everybody else? Fearless. They were probably scared, but they seemed fearless. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, and I'm going to talk about mental health because it's really important to me. I've been, I'm like, you know, I'm a survivor of the mental health system in Toronto and I was, I was hospitalized at one point. The thing is that Jim, for instance, God bless him, but he has had his mental health issues as an adult, right? And I could see it then that these people are right on the edge sometimes. Um, and about other brilliant comics, I had my own theater when I left Yak Yak, I opened my own theater. And there was one brilliant actor there named Jim Tuck. And sadly, Buster, he went over the line into schizophrenia. Like, it was like Robin Williams. Robin Williams suffered from terrible uh, mental health problems his whole life and uh, lots of comics do, lots of actors do, right? So there is, with talent, there's a fine line there. You're going, are they crazy? Like, because there's some genius in them, right? You can see it, you know it, you see it in basketball players, it's in their eyes, right? Yeah, right? like yourself, yeah. Like who, Kobe? You know, like anybody like that, you go, what? Even when they're teenagers, you go, what? And they work harder too. Like like Jim, you could tell was working hard. Jim Carrey, or and and Howie working hard. Like they took it seriously, like you do in your business, and I did in mine. Right? You take it seriously, and you have some talent. Then you work your ass off, and those are the people that make it. Right? So. Wow, super interesting. That's so cool that that you had that experience. I want to talk about something else in the uh, entertainment business. So before we came on, you were you were mentioning to me, and this this might hurt some people's feelings, or it might ruin some TV shows. Uh, Later, okay. yeah, you were breaking down to me um, that oftentimes, you know, an interview like uh, Jimmy Fallon or Kim or Ellen or somebody like that, those questions that they're asking are pre-sent in by the teams um so it's it's so they're setting themselves up for their own joke it's like they're playing against the nobody there there's no i mean is there even skill break down to me how that works going from not being on a show to sending in questions to being asked those questions that you pretty much asked yourself so uh when you have a team and you reach a certain renown, and you're going on the top talk shows, uh, your team uh, prepares notes for the interviewer. Um, this may be not the same for all talk shows, but the thing at the talk show is 
they want the guests to have a really good experience. They want the guests to be funny. They want the guests to be interesting, entertaining. So what the what the, uh, the star does now? Let's say somebody like um, who who's your favorite comic right now? Do you, do you like somebody who's very funny? Like Kevin Hart's great. Oh, Kevin's incredible, right? He's very funny. So Kevin Hart's team would send over the bio, what he's up to lately, and then a series of questions. So I want to ask you now, what what are you most passionate about in the world right now, October 2020? Okay, that's a good question. Um, you know, I'm working with a coach right now. Um, what I haven't talked about is how I made the transition from writer to coach and basically was um, about the year 2000 around there, I was tired of working alone at a, at a keyboard. I, I'm, as you can tell, I'm a people person. I love people. And the part I loved about writing was interviewing people, you know, getting the background research. I didn't like sitting there typing. I was tired of typing. Let's put it that way. So uh, I met some people who were coaches. And this was 2005. So when I said to people, I'm going to become a coach, and they'd say, what sport? They go, no, no, no. It's, it's like, you know, you, you're, a, you're a person who helps people in their business. You coach them. Really? Oh, isn't that their boss's job? You know, it was like that, man. It was like, I compared it to, to the, when, you know, in the fifties, if you said you went to a party and, and they asked me, so what do you do for a living, Bruce? I'm a massage therapist. You're, you're what? I, um, I'm, I, people take off their clothes and they get, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. They just lie on a table on their stomach and then I rub them with oil. Hey, <laughs> you know, it was like that. I had yeah. to explain it, right? So, but what I really wanted, and this is my passion, and here it is in a nutshell. My passion is helping business people avoid unnecessary suffering. Mm. This comes from some Buddhist training I had. I studied Buddhism for four years. And the first line of Buddhism is, life is suffering. Right? It's inevitable. There's going to be suffering. You know that. You've suffered. You've yeah. got your problems, issues. Yeah, you can tell me later about your issues. We'll talk about it. No, not now. <laughs> um, but everybody's got suffering, right? The trick in life, as the Buddhists say, really, is to avoid the unnecessary suffering. That's optional, based on usually self-centeredness and pig-headedness. And then there's the necessary suffering, which leads to growth. You know, pleasant experiences lead to pleasant experiences, and unpleasant experiences lead to growth, usually. The tough stuff, right? So I thought, how can I help people avoid unnecessary suffering? Well, I'm in my 60s now. When I started coaching, I was in my 50s. I thought I could work with people mainly under 40 who are making decisions which if they make the wrong one, simple decisions that I've been through many times, I've been through four recessions, maybe it's five now, right? And I understood, I've learned resiliency, I've learned how to pivot, I learned how to all this stuff, right? So I figured if I can help a business owner avoid unnecessary suffering and also support them and encourage them to live through the necessary suffering of change. So many of my clients, they need to change, right? And they trust me to point out where. And then I say, you've got some thinking to do in this area what you're doing 
is going against your success, 100% against it. You think it's actually a benefit that you, you think it's a, a character trait that you're so proud of. But you know what? Like, for example, say something, somebody's too confident. Right. Like overconfident. Yeah, so they're like, those people. <laughs> yeah, they're full of shit. You know what it is. It's a defense mechanism to seem confident when they're not. But you, you're a straight ahead person. You're just like, you're not trying to impress me or your viewers because you have real confidence, right? So anyway, I'd say, you're not yourself. You're not authentic. You're putting up a phony front. You're showing off or something. I don't know what it is. Oh, and I say it to me because, you know, it's not therapy, but I'm, I'm their coach. And they go, because I'm scared to go into that office at the NBA or whatever and talk to tall people who, you know, older than me, who have a lot of money and experience. That's uh, nothing, I say. Nothing. Not important. Be yourself. Show your flaws. Screw up. It's fine. So that's been the greatest passion of mine and continues to be is when a client of mine has an aha moment. You know, when you've been working with a mentor and the mentor doesn't tell you what to do. He says, Buster, you know that thing where you do, where you do this, this, and this, and you say, they say uh, so what, what is it you're after when you do that? Oh, I want to be liked. And then he says to you, really? You think that's going to help you be liked? What if I told you it's making you not liked? <laughs> right? And you go, oh, you mean I'm coming off like an asshole? Yeah. But who's going to tell you that? Right? Very few people. Me, you got to have a trusted, you have to have trusted people around you, advisors. Now, you probably have mentors in, the ter in terms of investors that have come on board. You've probably had mentors. Right. Yeah, I have a lot of people who will call me call me out on literally everything I do, including my outfits every day. <laughs> do you know how lucky you are? Very lucky. But you know why you have those? Because you have something called humility. And you got it at a young age, which is rare. Right. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. So congratulations. I don't know how you learned it. Maybe you have good parents, but basically you moved very fast between 15 and 20, you moved very fast and ahead of the pack. And you're not an asshole, congratulations. But the thing is you realize that you have to be yourself and you learned how to do that and be comfortable doing that, making mistakes and, oh, it's just me, I'm just Buster, don't, don't, whatever, right? And I followed you on, on, uh, on LinkedIn, and I see how you, you have fun with people and you interact, you're a regular guy, right? I love LinkedIn so much. <laughs> so I, yeah, me too, me too. So here's the thing, the tip I wanna to give to your listeners and viewers is the only way that you're going to improve in life, the only way you're gonna get better and get over your blind spots, and we all have them, me included. I have a coach right now. How are you gonna know your blind spots? You can't see them. You have to get a, someone close to you. Doesn't matter, mentor, best friend, and whatever. You sit them down and you say, listen, I want you to criticize me. Don't be codependent. Don't try to make me like you. I love you anyway. You love me, right? Yeah, yeah, we love each other. It's cool. Then love me enough to tell me when I'm fucking up. Tell me. Don't hold back. Now, if you've got two or three of those people in your life, 
you are so hard, far ahead of the game. But you see what that takes? You have to be yeah. willing to listen. Totally. How do you like it when your friend says, man, those shorts are just shit. What are you doing with those? You've got to get some better shorts, man. It's like you're, I don't know, you look like you're 12. What are you doing? Yeah, right. you go, yeah okay, but it's part of my brand. I want to wear funny shorts. No, nah, man, it's not your brand. You're just a lousy at shopping for clothes. <laughs> That's what you need to hear, right? I've gotten that multiple times. Yeah. So what do they, what's the best piece of advice you got that was hard to take? That was like, oh, geez. That's, that's a really good question. Um, or uncomfortable. I've gotten so many that it's hard to pick or choose from. Um, and I, I think, you know, oftentimes it can be disguised. Like there, the way I look at it is there are two, two types of criticism. There's like mean criticism where somebody doesn't even try to like, there, there's no, uh, the goal isn't to make you better. The goal is to hurt you. And sometimes, oh, okay. sometimes that though, uh, I'm able to turn it into look like hunting. I'm fishing for where there might be any truth in there. And then I take that to other people and ask them their thoughts. And if I get double positives from, from that, that's usually where I find the best. Um, and, and I, uh, that's, that's given me a, a lot of, a lot of great lessons and tips. Are you willing to be vulnerable for a minute? Sure. So what is the thing that you continue to work on that is a challenge for you to, to, to change? So some habit or something you want to improve on and you just got to keep working at it. Oh, for sure. It's the, it's mental toughness when it came to um, pretty much everything. So diet, working out, um, those are the two big ones, but that encompasses a lot of other things. But that was, that's something that I've always been really, really bad at. I'm really good at, you know, like me personally, I never drank, never smoked, never like, went on dates in high school because I was too busy working. Listen to this kids, sober works. Okay, all, all of these things, you know, yeah. I, I ate candy. That was like, that was a bad one. Um, oh, your teeth look great. Well, thank you. But it, you had them done. it slows you. It slows. I definitely have, but it also <laughs> slows, slows a person down. Um, as great as, as much as what, I, what is, what is mental toughness? Tell me what that means to you. Mental toughness to me, is being able to change, being able to decide that I want to change something and completely change it. So an example, after I was told this by, I was told it out of somebody trying to hurt me, I thought about it, went to other people, certain things, they were like, yeah, you could, you could, I think you could reach a greater potential in these categories. I was like, all right, I'm going to cut bread and sugar out of my diet. Okay. I did it. And oh, so I, they told you you were getting fat? You mean? No, 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 no. One person actually told me I was too skinny, but that's another, that's another story. Um, no, it was, it was more just they thought that I could work harder, do better. Um, and even if the, I am whatever perceived to be at, at whatever, I'm doing fine. But I, you always, anybody wants to do better. Um, yeah. And uh, I was just looking for little incremental non-business ways to get better as a person. 
um, and challenge myself and build that mental toughness because when you accomplish very difficult things, I've learned that that builds that muscle in your head. So for me, it didn't really matter what it was or even the effects of what I was doing. It just mattered that I did something that was really, really hard. So cutting out bread and sugar was huge for me. At the beginning of quarantine, I could barely run two miles straight. Um, and I'm an athletic guy, play basketball a ton, but it was the mental part that was difficult, not the physical part. Um, and so I took that not being able to do two to two weeks ago in LA, I ran half marathons on back-to-back -back days. And I did the second day as a celebration of finishing the first day. Awesome. I shouldn't have done that because I hurt my knees. But the point was that I built that muscle up even further. And mm -hmm. that's one of the things that I think, you know, people or some people, a person in particular tried to be very harsh on me for the wrong reasons. And I was able to take that and turn it into something that was good. So you know, that's what, you know what I call that? Wow. So part of my job as a coach is to remind my clients of their greatness, their strengths, right? It's called strengths-based coaching, right? So I, I, in what you just said, I'm hearing a number of strengths that you own. Tell me if I'm right or not. You're building resilience. Resilience. Stuff doesn't break you down. You listen, you go, yeah, okay. Criticism, you can take it. Resilience. Love criticism, like yourself. I mean, it's great. Open-mindedness. Flexibility. I'm not physically flexible, but hopefully. No, no, I'm talking about mental flexibility <laughs> now. I know, I know, I know. You'll work on that. Do some yoga, whatever. That's but, you know, so you've got willingness, open-mindedness, resilience. You've got uh, flexibility, the, the, the willingness to change. Willingness, as Shakespeare once said, the willingness is all. Fact is, if you're willing, you can do anything. But if you're not willing, if you're like hard-headed and you just dig your heels and said, no, I'm never going to do that. No, I don't do that. That kind of shit. You, it's going to stand in your way, man. Right? Willingness. Somebody says to you, yeah, just try going without bread for a month. Just see how, you know, you see, feel better. Okay, I'll give it a try. Right? That's what you said. Yeah. I'm willing. I'll give it a try. So if you keep, and this is for your viewers, listeners now, especially if you're young, build your open-mindedness, build your awareness, build your resiliency to criticism, build your flexibility, be able to pivot on something, admit you're wrong, build your humility. So Buster says, no, I don't think you have that quite right there. I was just reading about it. Don't go, no, I'm right. Let's go look it up right now. Say, you could be right, Buster. In fact, yeah okay good so let's keep talking what is it about that you found out right these are the character strengths that i tap into in my clients and encourage them to nurture and then whatever blocks they have when they're coming up and they hit something right find out what that is get rid of it right yeah. unnecessary suffering sometimes it's about delegate it then you know this guy was suffering about doing his own bookkeeping said, man, bookkeepers are, are 30 an hour. You're 200 an hour. Why are you doing bookkeeping? <laughs> That's a great point. No more suffering. But the necessary suffering was the same person was afraid of meeting people. Mm. And I said, man, we got to get over that. I know why you're afraid to meet people, prospects, you know, new clients. You don't know what to say to them, do you? 
No, I go to these coffees and we have a little bit of a chat and then I leave and I go, damn, I didn't get any business. I said, well, somewhere in the, it was a business fit meeting, right? So somewhere in the meeting, you got to get off the small talk and say, you know, Jim, have you got any projects coming up that I might be good for that I could help you with? Anything in the next six months to a year? And Jim goes, yeah, actually I got one coming up in a couple of months. Oh, you got room in your in your schedule? And you go, you know, keep a straight face, like maybe he has no customers, right? And he goes, yeah, I think I could fit you in. Right, so I teach people what to say. I think I can fit you, it's great, yeah. Support them. That's it. So I want to I want to talk more because we're both super passionate about you know mental health and the importance of it. Yeah. Um, I know um, I definitely think that you know just as popular as or how every school has a gym class that they should all have a mental health class. I think it's more important than a lot of classes that they do have <laughs> from personal experience. Most of them, yeah. Um, like I. As much as I love cooking class, cooking is very important. Very, very, very important. That I can learn at home. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I would really have appreciated a mental health class. I think it would be really important for you know a lot of a lot of youngsters. Um, what what would you say have been the biggest lessons learned? Um, you know, in your in your life's journey so far, in terms of getting over of you know uh uh feeling of of your mental health not being where it could be and then bringing it back to that point okay well i'm going to be very vulnerable now then and i, I think this needs to be talked about so i didn't realize till i was about mm, in my 40s that i was struggling with an addiction and with with depression mm -hmm. uh, depression anxiety disorder i just thought i was kind of a serious guy no i wasn't a serious guy i was a funny guy but i was also down a lot a lot of funny people are also down um so i had this low-grade depression and i had um i hit bottom on an addiction what it is doesn't matter right now and i don't really want to talk about it in detail but i hit i hit pretty bad down and out uh, when I was in my early 40s. And this addiction was camouflaged as having fun, but it really was killing me. And for some, you know, I believe in God, and God sent me this man who said this, he just opened up this conversation with me out of the blue about this particular addiction. And I said, okay, that's interesting. And a week later, I was in a 12-step meeting. And I've been, I've been in that for a couple decades now totally changed my life because my mental illness was addiction and underneath it was depression and underneath that was childhood trauma so i am uh i am a not a victim but a survivor of childhood trauma and that unhealed trauma and i want to tell tell you and, and the folks listening about a book i think i'll go grab it and just put it up to the screen so we got it most addiction in 12-step they tell you your addictions fueled by character defects that you've got some stuff that you, you the way you behave leads you into the addiction and then you're stuck and you can't get out because of your pride or all that no that's only the first level 
underneath the character defects, the behaviors, which are just bad strategies for trying to get by in this world and not kill yourself, which is what trauma survivors do. It's called PTSD. You just use bad, bad, you know, strategies, drinking, drugs, sexing, getting in fights, angry all the time, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff, acting out, it's called, right? They're bad strategies. So the thing is, I want all of your listeners to think about whether you're 20 or 25 or 30 or 50. If you remember some shit from your childhood, because nobody gets out of childhood without some trauma, sometimes it's minor, but talk to a drug addict, an alcoholic, sex addict, food addict, talk to any of them. Just ask them about their childhood. They were up against an impossible situation. They were put in a situation of absolute pain and suffering and helplessness. Right. That trauma, which is the same as in war, PTSD, stays in your body active for the rest of your life until you find a therapist who knows to ask, tell me about your childhood, but then doesn't say, oh, you had a rough childhood. Now let's move on and <laughs> change the subject. It says, yeah. okay, you've had traumas. You don't have to talk about them, but something happened to you when you were a kid, I can tell, that hurt you bad, probably, right? And so that's the thing you got to tackle once you get into your 20s. I absolutely agree with you that mental health is the next major thing and getting public health to support it. Like even in Canada, where, where I live, and we have free healthcare. If I was having a nervous breakdown, if I was depressive, depressive or suicidal, do you know how long it would take me to get a psychiatrist within the system? Six months, six months. Oh. If I show up at eMERGE with cancer or vomiting or anything physical, do you know how fast I would be admitted and be treated? and given yeah, millions right. of dollars of the best treatment in the world here at Mount Sinai Hospital, one of the yeah. best seconds is what I'd have to wait. Yeah. But when, like a friend of mine, I just had to do an intervention and get him in. He was suicidal. I had to get him into the hospital, put him in there for two weeks, chat with him. He got assaulted in the mental health facility, and now he's released. I'm going, no, that, that's not mental health treatment. We got to invest in this. I won't start on the U.S. because you've got big problems on, on public health, right? Yeah. But even, yeah. <laughs> even yeah. in a country where, where, where I, I, I had a heart attack in my 50s, right? Wow. And I got, it must be hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of care. I was, in, I was in cardiac ICU for a week. You know how much that costs, man? Like, this is like two or three grand a day, right? Wow. All paid for. I never even thought about it. So public health, you know, I believe we have a right to public medicine, to, to, to medicine that's free. Every person has a right. It's like the right to vote. It should be taught in high school, mental resiliency. If you have a friend who say, I'm feeling kind of down, say to this, say this to them. How down are you feeling, Buster? I don't know. I've been thinking about bridges and shit, like, like going to a bridge and that's a great question for asking friends and yeah. yeah I like like how, how down are you? How bad is it? And if they talk about suicide, you say, man, I got to get you some treatment right away. We got to, this is an emergency now. Yeah. Somebody commits suicide every second in the world. And did you, here's a little fact for you. 
men are more successful at it than women. Do you know why? I don't know if I want to know. Why? They're more willful ah. and violent by nature. So when they get their will going and their violence going, because dep depression is a pride thing all over again. Depression is self-hatred, man. So you're going to commit murder on yourself. And that's why I intervene. I call the cops on this friend because he told me I'm going to do it. I have a plan. He told me the details and I was supposed to do it yesterday, but I missed my deadline. I called the cops on him. Right. This is what you have to do for your friends. For you. Don't mess around with suicide. Too many teenagers are going, they're gone. You know, they're gone. And everybody's going, what the hell? You know, uh, I knew he was a little down. But if you really love somebody, you say to them, you look in the eye and say, Buster, you're not yourself these days. What's going on, man? I'm worried about you. I've been, you know, I've been sleeping. I haven't been out of the house in a week. I'm just not interested in living anymore. Right? Have you had that yet? Have you had a friend say that to you? Uh, yeah. Take action. I've They're mentally ill. I'm glad that Sorry, I go ahead. did. Yeah. Did you intervene? I that I did. Okay. Yeah, that's, everybody. You got to. So for everybody out there that has has had friends or. I think most people will experience that from a friend in the future. Um, you know, the right thing to do is immediately get them help. And that's and that's, don't don't try to argue with them, because when somebody wants to kill themselves, that means they're mentally ill. They may sound really logical, right? I was suicidal years ago. And I was really logical about it because I'm really smart, right? So-called. I was crazy saying, well, it's the most reasonable thing. I'm never going to such and such. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I think I'm really logical. But the person who wants to kill themselves is de facto insane. Mm -hmm. So don't worry about the rules of being nice or I'm sure he'll come along, right? You're not a professional. Get them help. If you if your friend came by and their you know this bone was sticking through the skin, you know, and you, would you say, oh, "I'll be fine. Just put a bandaid on it. It'll clear up in a few days." Let's right. talk about. It. So my oh. question, my question coming off of this is, what what are the first lessons we can teach kids at a super young age, and what what age can we start this conversation of a mental resiliency and how to take care of those around you? Like what, when, what age can this be implemented into the system? When you're born, parents need to start, uh, need to start tuning in and being aware and tuning in to the feelings of the child, the feelings, not the behavior or the thoughts or what they're doing, you know, with their diapers or walking or not, with their feelings. Because my disease was the repression of feelings. Anybody I've met in recovery, what was it like at your house when you're growing up? Oh, we never talked about feelings. What do you mean you never talked? No, no, no. If you had bad feelings, you covered them up. If you were too happy, you were you were made fun of. What are you so happy about today? It's not good, right? Feelings. Did you see that movie? It was made by Pixar, I think, and it was all about feelings. She went. Remember this, what the, what it was about? 
Oh man, it was an animated film, Pixar. I, I love Pixar, so I've probably seen it. I've seen like every Pixar movie a million times. It was the mental health movie you wanted everybody to make for kids and they finally made it. It was about a character and she had to try to deal with her feelings. And they made little cartoon characters out of each fake feeling. So anger was this guy. Uh, yes, 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 I remember. Get your staff. Uh, you've got staff, don't you? Get them, get them to working on it right now. <laughs> Podcast is just me I know. and a kid named Dylan who does the clips. So shout out to Dylan. Thanks, um, but, uh, but yeah, the podcast is, is, is just us. I was watching Joe Rogan the other day and he, he's like, uh, check that out. And, you know, two seconds later it comes up on the screen, right? But anyway, here's my message. If your parents, uh, you're growing up, you're a kid, and you're listening to this or watching this, I don't care whether you're seven, 17, whatever, and you're still living with your parents, and God bless them, remember, every parent on earth is doing the best they can. And this is not a homily, this is not some bullshit. Every parent is doing the best they can. And sometimes it's really pretty subpar, sometimes, okay? It's not their fault. They only can do what they learned. And they came from worse, believe me. My dad came from worse than I got, way worse, right? Here's the thing. If you're living in a house where feelings are not accepted, where when you're crying, you're told stop crying, when you're laughing too much, you're told to settle down, when you're worried, you're told to calm down, you're fine, read a book, go to your room, then for God's sakes, find somebody at the school, the guidance counselor, a best friend, some other parents who talk about feelings when their kid is crying, they don't say stop crying, they say what's wrong? Do that, save yourself. You have to learn the language of feelings. And that's basically, that's what recovery does, man. I don't know if you know people in recovery, but you go to these 12 step meetings, you learn how to feel. Mm. You get the bullshit out of the way of all the, all the compensation and the show off. You get down to the nitty gritty and you sit there and you go, you're able to say, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little story. Until I got to recovery, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed to say to even my best friend or my family, I'm a little down today. Can you believe that? I was ashamed to say that. Because in my family, you're not allowed to be a little down. There's no room for being a little. You just, you know, get your act together. What do you have to be down about? All that shit, right? Yeah, I've, I've seen all that. Yeah. It's crazy. I I don't. I'm very lucky because I, I think my parents had the opposite view, um, you know, as to where they were very welcoming of all that. But I've seen it um, in other situations, so I'm definitely very empathetic towards that. If your friend comes to you and says, "I'm feeling down today," say, "Tell me about it. I've got all the time in the world. Go ahead. Let them get it out. Right? Let them say." You know what that's called? That's called validation. That's all we want. I got a little, you like acronyms? Love acronyms. Okay, V-A-R is the one you're going to love. What do people most want? How do you make relationships with people? You give them the V-A-R. Make them feel valued, appreciated, and respected. That's, uh, that's very Dale Carnegie. I don't know. It was from a course I took on listening, but yeah. Right. I love that. So yeah, mental health. I've been through the ringer. I was suicidal. I was hospitalized. It was nuts. 
even in this wonderful country of great socialized medicine, you know, the loony bin was not good. It was not well run. <laughs> it was bad. But you came out and now you're in the very, you're in the top 0.0001% success because you're talking about it openly and you're helping others. So that puts you in a stratosphere, you know, that is, you know, in, in the basketball or sports world, we refer to those people as the goats, um, as the late, the late goat Kobe Bryant always, you know, used to say, and I, and I love this saying that, you know, you are only uh, like the measure of your success is how many people you helped along the way. Um, and What's I a goat? Explain goat to me. I don't understand it. Goat, another acronym, greatest of all time. So you can be greatest of all time at surviving suicide thoughts, for example, or getting through mental illness. Or helping other people with their own and mm -hmm. creating this conversation around it. I, and there are multiple goats for every goat to me just means that you're great at something and it's just yeah. a more fun acronym that people you know like but I um, think I was I think I was born I don't know whether you believe in being sent to earth whether it's a spiritual belief I believe that every human being arrives on earth with a purpose you got to find that purpose when you're young and then follow it and I believe my purpose was this very thing because I was doing it since I was in grade school, help other people remove their unnecessary suffering. I call it helpful, capital H. Yeah. If you got a solution for somebody, share it. If yeah. you, if they say, you know, like somebody's, say a client, this is a good one for your business people. You got a client, right? And you're helping them with their, I don't know, online marketing. And they happen to say, geez, I gotta go. Uh, I'm trying to find somebody to do such and such, like to detail my car. And they got to do it tonight because I'm a real estate agent and I got to show a house tomorrow and I got to make the sale. You go, oh, I got a guy. Uh, let me, let me, I'm going to go get right back to you. Let me call him. So you call him and say, can you do this tonight? It's, it's, it's for me. Do it for me. You get his car detailed within an hour. That's not showing off. That's being a mensch, as the Jewish people say, a mensch, a good right. person. I'm very familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, are you Jewish? My mom is, so. Yeah, all right. Muzzle tov, you know. So it's a, it's a mitzvah, you know. It's, it's, that's a gift. It's a mitzvah to, to help people. I, I, I thought I went to a therapist once because it was compulsively helpful. Do you know what that is? When you help too much? Meddling. Meddling in other people's business. Controlling them. Oh, let me help you with that. No, no, I'm fine. No, I mean, really, I think I can help. No, no, really. <laughs> Here's the image. There's this boy scout, and he's trying to help this little old lady across the street, and she's beating him with her cane, saying, I'm fine, I can walk. Will you leave me alone, for God's sakes? Oh, my God. Right? That's called compulsively helpful. I needed to feel important, so I was always helping. That's not, that's not really helping. That's trying to feel better about yourself by being helpful. That's called codependence, right? So what you, my other, as you can tell probably, my other career was going to be psychotherapist. Yeah. And I, I still might do it. My own therapist said, I think you'd be good at it. So, That's some very high praise. Yeah, well, he wants me to go be a peer counselor at the local community center, right? And I go, all right, I'll do it. You know, sure. I love helping people, don't you? 
it's the best. Isn't it the most fun when somebody says, I don't know how to figure this out. I mean, it's so, and you go, oh, well, I think it's just, it's just goat. What do you mean? And you explain it and they go, oh, it's goat. <laughs> and don't I you feel good? It's cool too, because there are all these different mediums now, like this podcast, somebody's gonna write to us after this being like, I learned this, this, and this, and it helped me with this, this, and this. You've never met this person. You don't know who this person is, but you do, and they know you. So I think that is, that's the most exciting, beautiful thing. And why I love podcasting so much because this episode is very different from when I, you know, talk about the fundamentals of a free throw with an NBA Hall of Famer, which is very different from a venture capitalist who spends all year you know, to invest in one company, you know, like it is just, but those each help all different subsects of people. Um, and honestly, I, I love the ones that help the widest variety of people. And, you know, talking about things like, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that you were, you were willing to share on, on mental health subjects. That's something that not one person, not one person, nobody is immune to that kind of, you know, uh, to learning more, being better. Um, and, and uh, you know, we are actually in the midst of a second pandemic right now. So the first pandemic is the coronavirus. The second pandemic is the millions of people who are in trauma and have been since since March. They're in trauma. They've lost their job. They're afraid to go outside. They're paranoid that their parents are going to die and their parents are dying. And I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about the pandemic of PTSD that is going to be all over the world for the next five years. This, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, I'm the only, like I said, I'm the only person on the team. <laughs> okay, well, it's going out on the air. Anyway, for the next five years, this is fucking people up. This, right. is, this is a traumatic experience. And I believe me, I've been through, I've been through some big shit in my life, right? I'm in my 60s now. I've been through like four or five recessions, you know? I've been I've been broke. I've been all kinds of things have happened to me. This is the worst. This trauma of I'm not I'm scared to go out in my neighborhood because I've got a mask on, but those people don't and they're not moving away from me and they're not about to because somebody told them they don't have to keep the, you know, the 6 feet away or 2 meters as we say here. That makes me very uncomfortable. It makes me anxious. I come back to my apartment. You know what I do? I go, oh, thank God I'm safe. That's not healthy, right? So that's why we need these media like Zoom and all that. We have to keep talking to each other about our mental health. Tonight, when we're finished, call somebody who you know has been stuck inside because they're really scared to get sick. Call them and say, it's okay. It's okay. Tell me what you're thinking. Mm. They'll go, man, this is never going to be over, is it? We're, this is going to be pandemic for the rest, for years. I can't take this anymore. I, and I lost my job. Reach out to them. Tell them it's going to be okay. You know, tell them they're going to get through it. Tell them we got through, you know, not my life. We got through World War II. You think this is bad. You know, the funniest thing I heard about the pandemic, and it's not funny, the COVID, but there are funny things, right? Wow. This guy on CBC, which is our national broadcaster, like PBS, right? CBC yeah. television. He says, guys, this was made for our generation, this pandemic, this big 
trauma, this big problem in life was made for us. And I'm not putting down Gen X, Y, Z or anything. It's nothing to do with that. Because we have phones? What? I have a nicer phone. Mine is a nice light blue. No, no, no. What he was saying was he was podcasting from home. Okay. No, no. He was, he was broadcasting from home. He was taping from home. National, national network television, right? So he says, he's from Newfoundland. They're very funny from there. He said, buddies, listen, all we got to do is stay indoors, eat snack food, and watch Netflix. And the prime minister tells us, good job. Good job. <laughs> exactly. When people start bitching about this man, hey, come on, you got to wear a fucking mask, stay indoors, wash your hands. Our fa my father and his generation went to fucking war for six yeah. years. My grandfather fought in World War II as well. Yeah. There you go. There you go. That's suffering. That's that's rough, man. But to be told to stay home, watch Netflix, and eat snack food? Come on. To wear a mask? Shut up. Wear the fucking mask. You know. There, I what I've definitely learned is you know especially from those who have come before me is that there are levels you know as like they say in, in rap songs there are levels to this shit but it's true in terms of like things that you have like it would be very different if because i'm at that age where i would be getting drafted and i am not instead i'm being told to sit inside and do my podcast from home instead of the studio oh, poor um, baby right and you know like when I look at everything, it's like, oh, all right. Um, you know, I I now have like before I recorded in a big studio and the guests came into New York and like all this stuff. But no, it, it wasn't that, but it cost me money. This, oh, doesn't, cost me, this doesn't cost me anything. There you go. It's beautiful. You figured it out. There are good things to everything. But the point being, this is not me fighting in World War II. I have nothing to complain about. And we have just the responsibility to keep ourselves and our friends and our families safe. Hey. It will be over. It will be okay. And I appreciate. We're gonna be okay. I appreciate you for um, for reminding me and everybody else here of that. Um, keep your perspective. One day in combat is the worst. I'm sure is the worst thing. One day in combat would be the worst thing that could ever happen to you in terms of trauma. This is nothing. We got this. Piece of cake. Well, but take it seriously, right? Don't listen to politicians who politicize it. It is communicable. It is airborne. You will get sick. It doesn't matter your age. You will go to hospital. God forbid they have to stick a tube down your throat. Then you're done for. It's bad, right? I've had friends' parents die. One friend of mine, he comes in, he says, I said, what's happened for you, Mike? Um, I'm really, um, I don't know if I can talk today. Both of his parents died in care homes the same week, two different care homes, right? The scandal, because they weren't ready to protect the people in long-term care homes here because they couldn't isolate anybody. So they didn't. 90% of the deaths in the first few months in Canada were in long-term care facilities. This is where you're supposed to be safe for the rest of your life and relax after being in a war and all that shit, right? Scandal. But you know, here's the silver lining. COVID has shown us the horrendous, shameful gaps in our healthcare system. Your healthcare system, which is pretty fucked, right? I mean, really. Our healthcare system 
it's really it's seen as a model all over the world for socialized medicine candidates, right? Yeah. We had huge gaps. We weren't looking after our seniors. We couldn't isolate them when a, when a pandemic swept through a long-term care facility. And you know what the other sad part was? This is tragic. It was the, care, the, the, the personal care workers, I don't know what you call them in America, but the people who went in and looked after the seniors, yeah. they're not nurses, they're paid $12 an hour, $15 an hour, right? Because the care homes would not employ them full-time, because they didn't want to spend the money on benefits. They, had to, they had to work in three different fucking homes. So they carried the pandemic and they got wow. sick too and they died. Does that make you angry? Yeah. It should. It should. And in America, what happened is again, the underclass, the poor people living close together in an apartment. Oh, well, just uh, go to different rooms. There's 12 people in our apartment, man. What the hell are you talking about isolating, right? Is it about who gets put into office to fix these things? Like, all some sound in the hallway. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's. Is it a matter of who we elect in these positions of power who care about anything? Um, I mean, you know, one of one of my uh, my goals one day, and you follow me on LinkedIn, I never write it there. But on Instagram, I've joked about it for a very long time that I'm going to run for office in 2036. Because okay. um, that's the first year that I Saturday night here, somebody's yeah. having fun in the hallway. Um, but so should. you know, the, the main the main point apart from that, which is half joke, half serious, and that I would want to you know, if hopefully things are all fixed by then and there are mental health classes and there are people who care about the elders and there are people who you know, are able to put proper healthcare systems here in the States, but everywhere else and people who are in the States that can help encourage that worldwide. Um, hopefully that's all, that's all taken care of by then. Um, but you know, it, it is also super important. This is very timely for this podcast because 80 plus percent um, of people who are in, uh, who listen to this podcast are from the States. Um, so everybody, I assume you're registered to vote. If you're above 18, get out and vote. You have to vote, man. I've been telling my American friends, I'm on the phone with my American friends. Are you voting? Are you, are you, have you volunteered to go to old people's house? Take voted them to vote? yesterday. Yeah, all right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, the turnout in 2016 was 53% or something. We got to do better than that. American election, it was low, right? Yeah, I think I think despite the fact that we're both A, in the middle of a pandemic, and mm -hmm. B, there's lots of voter suppression, mm -hmm. um, we will still have better voter turnout. And it's also up to everybody listening to this podcast. So, um, yeah, and you're not telling them who to vote for, right? You're just saying you've got to vote. It's, it's, it's critical this time in our, you know, let's set aside the politics. Things have to be done. Things have to be fixed in the USA. And they need to be fixed here in Canada as well. So, you know, you gotta you gotta vote, man. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not one to ever tell anybody what to do or who to vote for. I just voice the things that I care about. And at the tops of my lists are the environment. Um, I care about the world and the health of nature and animals. I love the ocean. Um, mental health is right up there. And then, you know social issues that's like and and health public health issues those are and education i guess kind of falls into the mental health segment but those are things that i care about so find the candidate who supports the things that you 
are that you put at the top of your political um i'm so glad to hear that you want to run uh, put me on the team we'll start now seriously start now because you're going to need that time and let me tell you one thing i just heard this on a podcast you got to have a scrubbable reputation it has to be pristine man because when you run you know, when I got divorced, my wife sued me on the grounds of homosexuality, because you could do that in those days, right? What am I going to do? Go to court and say I'm not gay, right? So you know, it was fine. It was amicable. Okay, it was it was it was cool. She was cool. But you know, what my lawyer said to me, I said, should I like, is this grounds because in Canada, you could rate, you could live two years separate and apart, and it was automatically granted. He said, if you ever run for public office, you're going to deny that you're gay. I said, absolutely not. And he said, no problem. You know why he said that? When you get divorced, the reasons on public record, when you run, they're going to find the dirt on you. They're going to find that thing that you tweeted when you were 16 that said some joke that was, you know, somebody, maybe a person of color wouldn't have liked. So start now. I would vote for you, man. I mean, absolutely. And even, it doesn't matter if you'd be president. If you become, you know, a council person in your uh, in New York, wherever you live, you're in New York City. Normally, I'm in I'm in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's I just heard on the radio, isn't there? There's some guy who's who's gay, and he's been at the front of the home all the marches. He's got this group of people, young people, that uh, are not going to put up with injustice anymore. He's running as a council person in New York City. Very cool. He's twenty. That's very cool. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think um, at the same time, though, things like this podcast, which I'll be building throughout that, um, can do a lot of similar things to what other political positions could do in yeah. the sense of being able to, you know, push the right causes and, and influence things in positive ways. Um, but yeah, definitely down the road, that's that's something that... Uh, it's a privilege like, you know. like yourself you just want to help as many people as possible so. public service is a privilege now a lot of people who go into politics they forget that too quickly it's a privilege because you are working for your constituents not the other way around you're not working for political interests or your party you are there at the favor of the people who voted for you you owe them and i think you would keep that in mind right it's a very tough game. I've read lots of stories about people going to politics with great ideas, but the machine gets to them, right? It's really, it to be really tough. You know, you have to be willing to lose the next election. That's the, there's the thing, right? You have to be so strong about what you believe in and what your constituents have told you that you have to be willing to lose the next election to get your cause forward. That's why, that's why apparently the uh the the rights for for the black rights the only way it happened is somebody lost the next election that the emancipation proclamation came in i don't know my u.s history that well but yeah, apparently somebody had to vote with their conscience not with their constituents who told them we don't want black people to vote or have freedom but he that person voted with their conscience, not with the constituents telling them something different, right? That's there's a tough how the world moves forwards. Um, I have this big graphic on the back of my computer screen, and it is uh, it's of here. I'll read it, um, and we'll close. Oh, on. I'm going to get that book. Hang on one sec. 
those for those listening to this right now, it is a it is a graphic on how quickly people adapt to things, and I think it's applicable to this as well. Two point five percent are the innovators; those are the people who will probably follow their conscience in that situation. But in terms of like uh, a new business, those are the people who flock to the new idea because of the opportunity. Thirteen point five percent are the early adopters; that closes out the early market. Um, and then 34% are the early majority uh, in the mainstream market, 34% uh, are the late majority, and then the last 16% are the people who didn't want to at all, had no interest whatsoever, but are doing it now because everybody else is. Um, so be part of that 2.5%, everybody. Bruce, what, what, were you going to add anything else there at the end? Hey! So this book is called In an Unspoken Voice. Yeah. And uh, can you just read that there? Yeah, How the Body uh, Releases Trauma and Restores Goodness. Peter A. Levine, check this guy out. I think he's passed away. He invented somatic experiencing, which is a proven method to deal with PTSD. It's not popular. It's kind of like on the leading edge of thought, but Somatic experiencing is a way to heal trauma, PTSD from war, from any kind of trauma. And this book I read changed my life. Changed my life. Brilliant stuff. It's brilliant. Do you know how this guy got started? He was an intern and they, he was on his psych, his psych rotation, you know, an internship. Yeah. And these guys were coming in from Vietnam. This was 1969. And the, the doctor in charge said, I don't know, I can't do anything with these guys from Vietnam. They're just freaking out. They wake up in the middle of the night. They're strangling their girl, their wives. They freak out. They freak out. They're on drugs and all. I don't know. Do something with them. Right. And he found the method that helped heal their trauma. And he has this gift to the world that, you know, find a somatic therapist, right? Find a therapist who understands this. Read this first. And nobody, here's what he says. This is actually a Canadian said this, Gabor Mate, who was another brilliant guy. He said, it doesn't matter who said, but I'll share it with you. Nobody gets through life without trauma, say by the time they're 25. Nobody gets through life without trauma in their childhood, but it doesn't have to be a life sentence. Mm. It can be healed, right? So if you're suffering some stuff that happened in your childhood, you know you were raped by your uncle, or you know that you were sexually abused by your dad for three years, I've heard it all, or you know that you were, watched your dad beat up your mom every Saturday night when he was drunk, you watch shit that nobody should have to look at, that sticks, it doesn't go away, it's trauma. Get some help if you can, right? Well, that's my big message. Hey, we could talk all night, but I'm sure you have to get some sleep. <laughs> I, it's been fun. Likewise, I really appreciate you coming on and and doing this. I'm glad you know we've been we've been jamming back and forth on LinkedIn for a while. I always appreciate mm -hmm. and love seeing you in the comments and everything um, and engaging you know with, with your stuff as well. So, again, I really appreciate you coming on. Where where can people find you if they want to follow some of what you're uh, giving out to the world? Well, if you want to, if you want to put this up on your final podcast, if it's visual, I'll say it for audio now, which is bruceherrett.com. I think my name's in the little square. I don't know if it'll show up on the podcast, but 
uh, bruceherrick.com, two R's and two T's, is my website. I have a free ebook you can have. It's called Heart to Heart Marketing. You'll see how I deal with marketing and how I help my clients. Um, yeah, and I'm on LinkedIn all the time. I really was attracted to your stuff because it's fun. You're the emoji king, man. And, and the other thing that struck me for a 20-year-old is you say, I love you, love you all very, very much. I was like, what the, what the fuck? He actually is saying that, and I know he's sincere. Like, that is really cool. I know what you mean by that. You don't love them. You're not going to live with them. Right. You know, marry them, right? Appreciate but it's the love. It's the love of the Torah, the love in the Bible, the love in every, every goddamn, or goddamn religion. <laughs> Every goddamn religion ever invented. You know, you know what those guys were preaching in love. the Torah and the Bible? Yes, unconditional love. Muhammad and, 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 and whoever, Jesus and whoever, uh, Moses, all those guys, all they were saying is, do what I do. Don't follow me. I don't want to be popular. Do what I do. I'm practicing unconditional love. Notice. Very hard to notice, though, right? Unconditional love is hard. Right? It's not easy. You know what I'm saying. No, I, I think I've never, I never really thought about it. I always, I always, um, I, I have never not liked somebody. And that is crazy to say. I've, I've, I, there are people who I wouldn't be friends with. There are people, um, or maybe not liked is, is the wrong. People whose policies you don't agree with? Lots of those. Yeah. Um, always, and that'll never. As happen. a human being, you don't put them beyond redemption. I think okay. you I think that's that's a much better way of articulating what I'm what I'm trying to put out. In Nobody the nobody's beyond redemption. I don't. I think that is like similar to what hate hating somebody is, um, and I I've never felt that towards anybody that I know personally or have met personally, and that is how I'm able to say love you all, and it is truthful. Keep spreading. Nobody is, nobody is excluded from that. Listen, you know they they say. At the end, at the end of the day, the only answer to every question is more love, unconditional love, spiritual love, acceptance, more acceptance, more love, more kindness. Right? At the end of the day, that's all it is. It doesn't matter. And that's what, for all the people who are saying who are business people, it's the same thing. You've got to love your clients. You've got to love your customers. If you don't, you've got to love yourself. That's why I wrote this thing about heart to heart marketing. Because if you don't love your product, you don't love yourself, and you don't love your clients, you don't deserve to be successful. It's true. You're just cynical, right? So keep preaching that, buddy. I appreciate it. Likewise. Well, Bruce, I don't want to hold you up too much longer. I know it's an hour later. I got to watch Netflix. <laughs> My man. Enjoy. Enjoy. Thank you again. Uh, I'm really excited to put this one out. Great. Thanks. Take care, Buster. Awesome. See ya.